As we come to God's Word together this morning, this is our fifth and final message in this series from Romans 13 uh, on the subject of a biblical view of government. This is part of our overall series in Romans, and next week we're going to get on with uh, verse 8 and following. Uh, But we have been uh, just ringing this text out for all that we can to learn about what is God's will for government and what is God's will for, for citizenship uh, for Christians. And what have we learned so far? Well, we've learned that government is God's common grace for the organizing of human society. God is a God of order. Anarchy is a kind of blasphemy to the character of God. And so we see that God establishes order in every sphere of creation. We know that there is order within the Trinity, and there's governance within the Trinity. There's governance within the perfect angelic realm. There is governance uh, in, uh, in, in the family, in marriage, in the church. We look at this and we see that governance or government itself is not the problem. The problem is the sinners governing the sinners sinfully. That is always the problem. For some reason, we never have angels running for public office. Have you noticed that? 2020 is another year of non-angels running for public office. So we look at Romans 13, and and we see what God's will is for government. What does God want government to do? And we see in this that he wants government to promote and incentivize in human society that which is good, and to approve those who are doing that good in society. It is also here to punish the bad, and to do so by law and by the sword, is what Paul writes, and in that way to decentivize, is that a word? I don't know, decentivize those that would choose to do evil in society. So affirm the good, punish the bad, that's the role of human government. Romans 13 also explains what it means to be a Christian citizen and what our posture is to be to the Caesar that is over us. And Paul summarizes this in that we are to submit to the government that is over us. And we do so as an act of worship to the authority that is over the government, and that is God himself, and to recognize that all authority is from God. And so for us, we submit to the lesser authority as an act of worship to the greater authority, an act of worship to God himself. And therefore, we are to do what is approved by those who are over us. And Paul highlights one of the most onerous aspects of this, which is we are to pay our taxes as a conscientious act of worship to God as well. I've preached that, I think, five weeks now. I've never got an amen, but I'm sure you are in your heart. So the net effect of this, then, is that a Christian is somebody who is a dual citizen, A Christian is somebody who is a citizen of the kingdom of man and is also simultaneously a citizen of the kingdom of God. And at times we live in the tension of those things. Jesus summarized our posture, though, as we are to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar and we are to render to God the things that are are his. Now, we might look at that famous statement and see, and we used these circles last week, we might think, oh, there's things that are Caesar's and there's there's things that are God's. And to see these as being disjointed, that is not true. Why do we say that? Because the earth is the Lord's and and the fullness thereof. And a better perspective on what he's saying here is the next slide, that really everything is God's things, but there are some things within that that God has deputized human government to be responsible for. 
This is a critical distinction because we want to avoid certain errors that historically have plagued the church and plagued society. For example, the error of making the church an earthly government. So we think of the Holy Roman Empire, if you know your history as an example, or maybe even the Crusades, which were a kind of confusion on this point. Think of how many people died as a result of that confusion. This shows you that ideas have massive consequences. Or the mistake of the church as a state institution. So if you go to England, you have the Church of England. If you go to to Germany, you have the state Lutheran church. You go to China, there is the three-self church. And these are all basically wings of the government. They are not distinct from the government. And when the government becomes the church, or when the church becomes the government, what happens is the church compromises and capitulates to the state. So there must be separation, and we see Jesus himself teaching a separation between these two spheres of human society. Now, if that sounds confusing to you, go back in the, in the website and listen to previous messages, especially last week where we talked about why that distinction is important. Now, you may hear all of this and go, it just is above my head, I don't want to worry about it. And you know what? You have that luxury as long as uh, this, in, in the country that you live in, the government's generally doing what it's supposed to do and this church is generally doing what it's supposed to do. We can all remain confused and life goes on and it's okay. But when these things come under attack or when these things are now being played with, now the church had better understand what is the role of the government and what is the role of the church. Otherwise, we are easily sucked into the vortex of the state. And you look at the history of Germany, for example, in the 1930s, one of the most educated and one of the most Christian countries on the planet. And yet, they very quickly capitulated to Nazism to show you what happens when God's people don't understand clearly what this is all about. The days we are living in may be that kind of thing. They may not be that kind of thing. But they certainly are revealing people's core values and core identities these days that we're living in right now. I was recently with a pastor whose church is being torn apart by the cultural wars that are going on right now. And he said to me, he said, I am convinced that many, maybe he said most, I don't recall, of the people in my church are more being discipled by Tucker Carlson than by me. Maybe with tears in his eyes, he said that. Why is that a problem? This guy's an outstanding pastor. But if your basic identity is not a Christian in Christ identity, but it is who you are politically, or who you are in some of these other sort of uh, battlegrounds going on right now, you will easily capitulate to to the political to identify more with these kind of identities that really have nothing to do with Christ. It's the Caesar stuff. But God's people today, and I say this with tears in my heart, I can't manufacture them right now, but in my heart, it makes me incredibly sad to see from my eye some people, even within our church, who are much more about Caesar than they are about Christ. What is our core identity? Is it a political thing for you? Is it opinion about the virus or proper procedures with the virus that you're ready to go to war with? 
I read a funny cartoon and it was a guy sitting at his computer and he kind of looks at the, you know, looks at you through the cartoon and he says, I can't wait for the pandemic to be over so we can all go back to being constitutional lawyers. Instead of the expert epidemiologists that everybody are now. I've jokingly said, I had no idea we had so many epidemiologists in our church, who knew? Masquerading as blue collar, white collar workers and employees around Northwest Indiana. What I'm urging us as a church is our core identity cannot be in the Caesar stuff. Who are we? In Christ, we are a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Our core identity has to be who we are in Christ. Who I am as as a recipient of the grace of God, that gospel message of Jesus dying on the cross for my sins, resurrected on the third day, conquering death, granting the gift of eternal life. These things, the Caesar stuff, is all part of a world that is passing away. And if you tether to that, good luck. We as Christians are tethered to the eternal and our core identity has to be who we are in Jesus. Not a political party, not a political argument, not a race, not a race argument, not a pandemic. In Christ alone my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. Can we sing that genuinely? So I'm just getting started here, folks, today, because this is the fifth message, and I got a whole lot of things I got to clean up before we're done here. We have a lot of loose loose ends, or dare I say, hanging uh, shards, Uh, and so let's get into it. And my format here is I'm just trying to wrap up stuff in our sort of theology of this from Romans 13. I'm not so much expositing today. Uh, but I do have some questions and then answers. So here's some common things that people are wondering about today. And the first one is this. Should Christians be involved in government? Yes or no? Should Christians be involved in government? Is it okay for a Christian to seek public office? Or in that vein, should a Christian vote if they happen to live in a democracy, if they are unbelievably historically blessed to live in a day where they have a say in anything? unlike the billions of others who've lived, who've never had that. You know where I'm going already. (laughs) Okay? Now, you might say, that's an easy question. It actually isn't an easy question. These are things that the church and God's people have struggled with regarding this relationship between Christianity and the church. Now, I want to say thanks to Jonathan Lehman and Wayne Grudem for helpful writing on this and footnoting them as we talk about, let's talk about some wrong ways to do this, okay? What are some wrong ways? Number one, I'm calling disengagement. Disengagement. I want you to think about monks and monasteries in this example. Disengagement. Let's go find a mountaintop. Let's just let Babylon burn. Let's just go find a place, hum and chant and wait for Jesus to come back. Let the world, you know, go to pot. We don't care. We're citizens of heaven. Let's just get into a bunker. The barbarians are at the door. Let it go. Well, what do we say to that? Well, we're certainly glad Jesus didn't take this approach, are we not? He could have easily remained cloistered in that wonderful place called heaven and just let this whole world go to pot but we're glad he did not do that. 
We look in the Bible and we see that there are many heroes in the Bible who themselves were involved in government and very positively influenced the society that they lived in. Here are some examples. Joseph, second in power to Pharaoh, king of Egypt. We have Nehemiah, cupbearer to the king in the Persian Empire. We have Mordecai, second to the king, also in the Persian Empire. Daniel, famously Daniel, very high official in the Babylonian Empire under Nebuchadnezzar. And I think Daniel in particular provides a, a counter to the argument that we just need to just step back and you know, disengage here. Because Daniel certainly didn't do that. If you know the story of Daniel, he was taken from, from, uh, from Israel to a foreign land, but because of his character and his incredible intellect and his gifts, very quickly he found himself in proximity to the, to the, to the king of the world at that time. He didn't shrink from it. He didn't say, I can't do that. But what do we also know about Daniel? He didn't compromise. Even when praying to God might cost him his life, he did not compromise. He continued to witness for God in the pagan Babylonian empire. Have you heard the song, dare to be a Daniel, dare to stand alone? No. Dare to only choose what's right. Dare to stand did I say that right? I think I sung it wrong. Here's my point. They don't write songs about monks, okay? <laughs> if you want to have a song written about you, don't go to a mountaintop, okay? It's the people that engage and are in the game, in the fight. And Daniel certainly was that. So disengagement is not, uh, is not a biblical option. Here's another one, is surrender. Surrender. This is the capitulation option, where the church because of power exerted by the state, says, okay, you win. We'll just be a vassal of the state. And there are many examples of this. Some of you might be looking at that going, nobody would ever do it. Millions have done this. We look at, for example, in, uh, in uh, the, the Soviet Union, the Orthodox Church under Soviet communism completely capitulated, became a wing of the state. We can think about the German church under Nazi rule. I, I have stood in the church there in Wittenberg where Adolf Hitler removed the acting head of the German church, installed his hand-picked person as the head of the national German church. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, maybe you've heard of him, was actually at the event, standing in the back, and as Hitler uh, you know, bestowed this honor on, I forget the guy's name now, Bonhoeffer leaned over to Martin Niemöller and said, you are now witnessing the death of the church in Germany. Okay, that's surrender. When the church just capitulates to the state and says, okay, we're just gonna do whatever you tell us to do. Not an option, okay, not an option. Here's a third not option. And that is when, when we view political success as spiritual success. This is a confusion of why the church is here, okay? We are not here to rule and reign the kingdom of man. That's not our role. That's not God's call on us. We're called to do what? Make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Our mission is very different than the mission that Caesar has. So for example, if I say the, these two words, what do most people think? Moral majority. Here it's been how many years? 40 years since moral majority. And what do people still think? 
hypocritical people driving their religion down our throat. How successful was that in the end? Not so good. Cal Thomas Ed Dobson, both leaders in the moral majority, wrote a book together entitled Blinded by Might and how they regretted their role and function in the moral majority. We have to be very careful as Christians not to wrap the cross in the American flag, or any flag for that matter. This is a danger that we have where somehow we become basically a political action group. And all the people think all they care about is political power. They just want to have their person sitting in the right office, and that's what Christians are, are all about. No, 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 no. In fact, some years ago, we had a presidential candidate that contacted our church and wanted to hold a political rally right here in this room. It got quiet all of a sudden. So do we allow that? Now, if right now you're thinking to yourself, well, it depends who it was. (laughs) You are missing the point. None of the priorities of a church are accomplished by political power. Can I just say that? None of the priorities of a church are accomplished by political power. That's why Jesus, the king of the kingdom of God, said to Pilate, the Caesar of that time in Israel at least, my kingdom is not of this world. Now, by the way, Hillary did not come to Bethel. She went to Broncos instead if you remember that. So if we shouldn't go into a bunker, and if we shouldn't surrender, and if we shouldn't compromise, what should we do? And here I'm, I'm uh, using Dr. Grudem's summary statement where he says that Christians in society in relationship with government should seek to be what he calls a significant influence a significant influence. Here's his definition of it. The significant influence view says that Christians should seek to influence civil government according to God's moral standards and God's purposes for government as revealed in the Bible, when rightly understood. But while Christians exercise this influence, they must simultaneously insist on protecting freedom of religion for all citizens. These are the two circles. In addition, significant influence does not mean angry, belligerent, intolerant, judgmental, red-faced, and hate-filled influence, but rather winsome, kind, thoughtful, loving, persuasive influence that is suitable to each circumstance and that always protects the other person's right to disagree. But that is also uncompromising about the truthfulness and moral goodness of the teachings of God's word. I like that a lot. I don't know how that's landing in your heart right now, but I like that a lot. It avoids the, the, the negatives of the other approaches, but it retains that salt and light concept that Jesus talked about, where we influence, like salt influences something that you eat, and like light influences darkness, the church is called to be salt and light without becoming the city on the, or well, the church is the city on the hill, not the, not, not, not the country. Anything that smells like politicizing the church compromises the church's call to proclaim the gospel, and it has to be avoided. I I think of Billy Graham as a great example of this to me. 
You know, Billy Graham, it was, you know, how many decades he was the most popular or respected person in the country or the world, I can't remember. All any politician needed was Billy Graham's endorsement and he would win in a landslide. But Billy Graham refused to endorse anybody because he wanted to retain a prophetic role in the country. And to me, that's an example of where our church should be and where we should be on this, is that, yeah, we want to influence, but, but we want to proclaim Jesus, and we don't want the political to compromise our standing in society to be able to tell them about Jesus and what the kingdom of God is all about. This doesn't mean that we become a monastery either. Okay, we do everything we can to influence society and government, not towards Democratic or Republican or Libertarian or, you know, whatever party, but towards the light of God's will and purpose, God's goodness. Light is not term limits. Light is not border walls or no border walls. Light is not healthcare policy. It's moral light. It is light that guides governments to lead towards God's common grace for human flourishing. That's where we want government to go. Here's Proverbs 14. Righteousness exalts a nation. Sin is a reproach to any people. What do we want? We want righteousness here in our country. And when Christianity influences, the influence is towards God's wisdom and will, not away from it. And these include categories like this, human dignity, morality, the inherent value of human life, religious freedom, justice, punishment of evil, the promotion of his gifts to society, including marriage, family, and loving your neighbor. I mean, think about the impact that, that this has had for good. I'll give you two examples. When you think about William Wilberforce, Wil Wilberforce in England and the role that he played in ending slavery literally in the world, one, one biographer that I read said that he is perhaps the most influential person you've never heard of in all of human history. I think about Martin Luther King Jr., who also similarly appealed to man's conscience regarding human treatment. One changed the British Empire, one changed the American Empire. Where are we going with this? Here's Jeremiah 29. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. People should want Christians to move into the neighborhood. People should want Christians to, to live in their, in their city. Why? Because, man, the, the net effect of having Christians in your, in your HOA is things get better. <laughs> There's, you know, the, the, or the, the, the PTO. Man, we love having Christians in, in the PTO, parent-teacher organization. Why? Because they just, man, things seem, they push things in a way that things tend to flourish and and, and there's, there's a kind of respect and there's a dignity to it. Here's what Paul writes to Timothy regarding prayers for Caesar. He urges praying for kings and all who are in high positions. What is the net effect of that? That we may live a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. 
Now, some of us, it's easy to pray for the people that are over us when it's people we like. Oh, yes, God, blessing upon President fill in the blank. But if it's not somebody that we like, you know, now we, we turn to the imprecatory psalms. <laughs> We're praying imprecatory prayers down upon the politicians that we don't like. There's no distinction here. We are to pray for those who are over us. Pray for wisdom. Pray for blessing. Pray that they would lead in ways that, that uh, promote good and allow the church to, to promote the gospel in our country. Prayers like this are what pleases God. That's what it says. I just, can I just say we should all probably up our game in this category? Okay? When was the last time you prayed for blessing and wisdom for the political leaders over you? Let's try to make this a regular prayer for us. Okay, so significant influence. That's what I'm promoting here today. Should Christians influence society? Yes, every aspect of society. What does love your neighbor include? Probably everything, right? It's not just their yard. It might be their child. It might be their grandma who's living in the basement. It could be, you know, there's so many things. We just are to promote the good of our, of our city. This includes the stakeholders and the power brokers to be a part of that. To be a, I've said it this way. I, wanna, I want Bethel Church in Northwest Indiana to be the kind of church that when the chips are down, people turn to us, including government leaders. We've built trust, we've built relationship. Love and justice for our neighbor. Christians can serve in government as a means to significant influence. I would encourage you, if you are thinking about maybe running for office, maybe that's something, you know what, that's awesome. That's great. We're not gonna endorse you, okay, but we can pray for you, and we'll uh, quietly celebrate if God provides that for you. Uh, It's completely legitimate, as long as we don't somehow view you getting into office now, boy, this is gonna be awesome for the church. No, the church doesn't need anybody. God doesn't need Nebuchadnezzar or any other king to do what he needs to do. And I would say we need a lot more Christian statesman types on all levels of government, that would be a good thing. Let's talk about voting, okay? Let's talk about voting. We happen to be a very small number of people in all of human history who actually have a say in the government over us. We're gonna get to heaven and there's gonna be people that are gonna go, oh, you are one of those American Christians. You actually got to vote. We never even, nobody, we never could do that. We just had to do whatever they said. Because that's most of what the world is and most of what history has been. But if you're a a citizen in the U.S., you are one 330 millionth Caesar. You realize that? We all have a stake in, in, uh, in government. And if we are to pray for peace and the good of our city, should we not at a minimum vote towards those same goals? I want to urge you to vote. To me, it's a stewardship issue. It's not like, "Ah, I can't work it in or not. No, this is a stewardship issue. Vote. Well, but, you know, should we vote Christian values? Should I I take my Christianity into the voting booth uh, with me? Here's what I would say. You should take your Christianity everywhere you go. (laughs) The voting booth, the photo booth, the toll booth. Pick your booth. You, you, you take your Christianity there with you. And to vote in directions that lead towards the flourishing of God's will. 
and to vote for candidates who seem inclined towards legislating in directions that are according to God's will for society. Now, if you're here and like, I can't, I don't know, I don't know. Sometimes it's easier to tell the ones that are more for what is not God's will, and so then again, don't vote for them. Maybe that'll help you if you're not sure who to vote for. On the positive, it's easier sometimes on the negative. But take your Christianity into the ballot box with you. And especially, Bethel Church, listen, especially in our local races, every, every uh, election cycle I read the voting and all that, do you realize how many races could be swayed easily within the margin of the membership of our church? I mean, it's just the fact. That's just the math of it. If, our, if Bethel Church shows up and votes, it makes a difference in the outcome of elections in Northwest Indiana. It's just true. I urge you to vote, okay? Let's make a difference. Let's steward that opportunity. Okay, now for what you actually came to church for today, or what you wanted me to hear or uh, to talk about exactly, because I'm sure that over the course of all of this, there are, there are many of you that are going, but wait a second, we have to obey Caesar? Like, no matter what he says or she says, we gotta obey Caesar? Are there no exceptions to this? And here's the reality. There is exceptions to this. And what are they? When is it okay for a Christian not to submit to Caesar? And we have a very compelling example of this. You can read this later. I'm gonna, I'm gonna kind of fly through the story in Acts chapter five. But here's the context. So uh, the day of Pentecost has come. The Holy Spirit has come. Peter preaches the very first sermon there in Acts 2. 3,000 people respond to the gospel and are baptized on that first day. And the church now just takes off. And in Jerusalem, it says that they were, they were adding daily to those that were putting their faith and trust in Christ. And we look at that, we go, those were great days. Is that how the uh, religious leaders looked at it? No. They were not happy about this at all. They were filled with jealousy, the text says. And so they arrested the apostles, threw them in jail. God sends an angel, lets them out, says go preach some more in the temple. The religious leaders say, okay, drag those apostles out of jail. They say, they're not here. Where are they? They're at the temple, they're preaching again. Oh! They said, okay, bring them, bring them in. And so they, they bring them in and they have a big kind of like hearing. And they charged Peter and James and John and all the rest. They said, you are not allowed to preach in the name of Jesus anymore. Here is Peter's response, Acts 5, verse 29. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. We must obey God rather than men. God told them to preach Jesus. Jesus told them to preach Jesus. The angel that morning said, go preach Jesus in the temple. Now Caesar is saying, don't preach Jesus. And they said, we have a higher allegiance to God than we do to you. So what do we say from this? What is the exception clause? When Caesar requires us to do what God forbids or forbids what God requires then we must disobey Caesar. Okay, there's the principle. And history is filled with examples of this. So we go back into the Bible, and there are, there are the God's people there in, in Egypt, and, and Pharaoh says to the midwives, we want you to kill every male uh, child that's born. Did they do it? No. They disobeyed Pharaoh. We can think about famously Shadrach, Meshach, and Tibet we go. 
Abednego, who were told that you've got to bow down to the image of, of, uh, of, of, of Nebuchadnezzar. They said, we're not going to bow. Well, you're going to get thrown into the fiery furnace, and you know the story there. They refused. We have the apostles here who disobeyed the order not to preach Jesus. Okay, so there is an exception. But listen to your pastor here, everybody. Okay, please listen. We have to be very careful not to see every crisis of choice or preference as the exception clause or to develop a persecution complex where every time they don't do it exactly, say, we, we, you know, you gotta do something not the way you wanna do it, we're, we're under persecution. Because very easily, we can view personal inconvenience or preference as persecution. Or anytime I don't agree with what they're telling us to do, therefore I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm taking the exception clause here. And how do we know this? Because of Romans 13. Remember the context that Paul writes Romans and says you need to submit to Caesar. Who was the Caesar at that time? Julius Caesar. And who was to follow? Nero. And I mean, this is one of the most anti-Christian governments in history. If you were a Christian in Rome and the church at Rome and say, hey, what do you think about Caesar? I don't like him. You can walk through the parking lot of the church in Rome. There is not one car with a bumper sticker that says, Hail Caesar on it. Or, you know, love the guy. None of that. No. And yet, in spite of the anti-Christian bias, Paul says to the Romans, obey Caesar. Submit anyway. Let's go back to a very poignant time in history, also I think is helpful Let's go back to World War II. Anytime you talk about this, and it happened on, in this series as well, people always ask this question. So you're telling me if Hitler was the Caesar over me, I'd have to do whatever Hitler said? I literally got that email, I think the first Sunday after we started the government series. And I read somebody else that said, inevitably, whenever you bring this up, people want to talk about World War II because, uh, you know, that was such a, uh, poignant time in human history, and there were so many ethical dilemma, nuclear bomb, etc., that came out of that, that ethicists debate to this day. But for Christians, it also represents a, very, a time of incredible difficulty on the points that we're talking about here. Was it okay for a German Christian to serve in the army of Germany? Undoubtedly, Many th thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of Christians served in the army or served as secretaries or something in the, uh, you know, in the Third Reich. Was that okay? What about SS? What about Buchenwald or Auschwitz? Is it okay to be a part of that? I would say no. What about Oscar Schindler? Are you familiar with his famous list? Oscar Schindler, who was a wealthy uh, industrialist and was part of the you know, machinery for the military, hired many, many Jews into his factories and by doing so saved many, many lives. Should he have done that? What about Dietrich Bonhoeffer? I mentioned him earlier. Here's a fascinating guy. 
theologian, ethicist, young man, eventually died by hanging right before the Allies came in, but fascinating guy. You go to Westminster Abbey in London, there's a guy with glasses on the end of the statues. There's Dietrich Bonhoeffer, amazing. Bonhoeffer had the opportunity to participate in an assassination attempt on Adolf Hitler. Was that okay to do or not? He deeply struggled with that decision. Famously said, not to speak is to speak. Not to act is to act. So we look at Schindler and we look at Bonhoeffer and these two guys represent creative obedience in incredibly difficult circumstances in order to obey God's moral will, many others as well. And so what was underlying so much of this, especially the treatment of the Jews and what we now call the Holocaust? Human life is sacred. God's word says that human life is sacred. Therefore, and Frank, yes, you may hide in our closet. Or another famous example, hi, welcome, we're the 10 booms. Yes, you may hide here. This is our daughter, Corey. These are very difficult questions, and literally, life and death hangs in the balance. So what is the line in the sand? Is obeying Caesar disobeying God? That's the line. And that had better be very clear for this exception clause to be invoked. In my whole life, I have never done so. Not yet, at least. So it is a very rare exception, but it is there. Now, I thought it would be fun. Actually, I don't think it's going to be fun, but I feel like I need to. Uh, I thought it would be fun to run a current uh, debate through the grid of what we're talking about. Because I know some of you right now are thinking to yourself, but Pastor Steve, what about, what about mass? And what about social distancing? And what about government mandates about all this stuff? How does that apply? Anybody interested? I think we should talk about this. Please put your masks on as I do. And by the way, we're going to post a uh, Bethel backstage where we're going to dive a little deeper into this, I hope, later today. So watch for that online. But let's apply the test. Okay, so here's the first question. Is wearing a mask sin? Anybody think wearing a mask is sin? Anybody think not wearing a mask is, is sin? Got a good verse to uh, defend your mask is a sin argument? Notice I didn't ask, is it inconvenient? Is it undesirable? Is it smell your own breath all day terrible? <laughs> because we all say a solid yes to all those things. Okay? But again, is it sin? And if so, do you got a good verse for that? But Pastor Steve, Caesar can't tell us what to do in the church. Did you know, in fact, Caesar tells us all kinds of things that we have to do in the church? It's a very long list, but just to give you a few examples, we have to have a certain number of handicapped parking spots. Did you know that? Caesar requires it. We have to have uh, uh, 
fire alarms of certain decibels in all places in this building. And when they go off, it's unbelievably annoying. I gotta tell you. We gotta do it. They, they tell us that we gotta do it. Did you know that there's certain things that Caesar says about the way we built the balcony? Balcony people, I don't know if you're glad to hear this or not, but we followed what Caesar said regarding load bearing for beams, etc., for that balcony. I know you're terribly upset to hear that. I'm sorry, but we did. We followed exactly what Caesar has said. There are employer laws that we follow and have to follow, and we do. I could keep going. And we've been doing this for a very long time. I've never had anybody complain about those things. This is wrong. We need to fight the system. And why not? Well, because we would say, well, those are safety things. We care about the safety of our balcony people, amen? We care about our children. We care about the elderly and, and uh, ramps and arrangements for the handicapped and the infirmed and, you know, hairnets when we cook and uh, la, 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 all these things. We care about those things. And you know what? All of those things are in God's ordained Caesar circle is community health in the Caesar circle. Well, if it's not in the Caesar circle, that means it's in our circle. And we don't have any epidemiologists here to determine viral things. And that's why I say I think it's in Caesar circle. It's not in the church's circle. So this also falls within what God has ordained Caesar to do. Now you might say, but I don't think masks are effective, and I've seen studies, and I think it's a joke. You know what? It doesn't matter. Caesar could be totally wrong, and often is, by the way. No amen to that? Come on, are you with me? <laughs> but Caesar seems convinced about this in the community health category that God has ordained, they do. And so we should submit to that. Now, when don't we submit to that? We don't submit to that when the mask isn't a mask, the mask is a muzzle. If the mask is a muzzle, we do not submit. If the mask is a filter, you can say this and you can't say that. We don't submit to that. We don't submit. but I don't think the mass does anything. You know what, you can appeal to Caesar, Paul did once. Try to change his mind. Vote the people out of office or whatever you wanna do. And if Caesar doesn't change his mind, then for you probably it's yet another thing in the long list of governmental stupidity. And I would agree with much on your list, no doubt. But regarding the ethical challenges and difficulty of this matter and how high it rises on the tension of my faith, friends, we are not in 1941 Berlin here, okay? Dietrich Bonhoeffer's in heaven going, I wish all I had to deal with was mass. <laughs> so keep things in balance and perspective here. Now, what if Caesar forbid us from ever gathering? 
lockdown and it's permanent, you're not going to meet. What do we do? Well, again, here's where church history is so helpful. I have myself walked in the catacombs outside of Rome, where some of the people probably discipled by the people who read the book of Romans in the first place literally dug tunnels and gathering spaces underground. There's miles of them. It's amazing. And why did they do that? So they had a place where they could gather and meet. And so if ever in our day, Caesar says, you're never meeting again, guess what, Bethel? We're gonna get digging, okay? (laughs) Pass the shovel because we're gonna dig because we will gather. We will gather, okay? But if Caesar says temporarily, we need you not to gather for public health reasons, not heresy or changing the message, I think that's within their right to do that. So until then, we're taking the Schindler approach. And that is to creatively work within the bounds that Caesar lays out for us. And have we done that? I'll leave it to your own judgment, but what have we done? We have worked within those boundaries as creative as we can. We have indoor services, and we're conforming to the mandates that they've given to us for those. We have outdoor services, and uh, we're conforming to the mandates that they've given us for outdoor services. We have online services, and while not perfect, I'm sure glad for the technology. Do we like all of this? Actually, if I could be honest with you, I'm very much enjoying the outdoor services. Just going to be honest, it's pretty great. And there's hot dogs when you're done, so <laughs> I like that as well. Do we all agree with it? Likely not. But this shouldn't matter at all in terms of our church's unity and what we really care about. Because our core identity is not political and it's not pandemical. It is who we are in Christ. And this is where Paul goes, by the way, in the very next verse. He says in verse 8, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. He, what does he, go? he goes to love. And you know what? Caesar so far has not forbid us from loving one another. And Caesar doesn't require we love each other, but Christ does. Christ requires it. And so we see in this, you can be right on your epidemiology and massively wrong on love. You can be right on your your political thing and massively wrong on love. You can be right on your healthcare policy and your immigration policy and your view on taxation and your view on government and political parties and la, 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 and massively wrong on love. So far, Caesar has not forbid us from loving one another. So what I'm urging us here at the end is let's get Caesar right and let's render to him. Let's get God right and let's render to him. And let's get love right, and let's render to each other by putting each other's needs and opinions ahead of our own. And that's government, according to the Bible.